Hello, my name is Ran Bowen and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I'd like to start by honouring the traditional owners of the unceded land on which this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Joe and I pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We have a very special guest for today's episode, Nina Zolotau. Nina is a yoga teacher, a writer, an active member of the accessible yoga community, and creator of the blog and book Yoga for Healthy Aging. Nina's blog was one of my main resources and learning tools when I was doing my yoga teacher training, and she's had a major impact on how I approach teaching yoga, so we were really excited to catch up with Nina today. Nina has most recently written her latest book, Yoga for Times of Change, which will be available to buy this May, so later on this month. She was kind enough to share an advanced copy with Joe and myself, and it is definitely well worth a read. Anyway, that's enough from me. Let's hear from Nina herself. All right, well, Nina... Thanks so much for speaking with us today. It's great to finally get the chance to talk to you. Before we started, I actually just wanted to say when I was doing my teacher training a few years ago, Yoga for Healthy Aging blog was actually pretty much my go-to resource for all of my assignments and everything. You know, it's some really good evidence-based information there. And I think everyone else doing this particular course was more on the athletic end of yoga. So I think it was really good for me to have yeah such a great resource that you know can help people as they I guess move on to you know later stages of their life so yeah thank you very much for that oh that's just wonderful to hear I'm really glad that you found it helpful and also that book you know has a lot about yoga philosophy and equanimity which for healthy aging I actually think is the most important thing so that's a good supplement to you know, learning about the more physical side of asana. And you open your latest book sharing about a really hard time in your life and how along with medication and therapy, really exploring into yoga beyond the physical aspects really helped you. Would you like to share a little bit about this time? It feels like it might have planted the seeds for this book and actually so much of your other work. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So first, I guess I have to tell the story again. When I moved to England, I was in my early 30s and I was pregnant. Before that, I'd been living in Boston, which was also not my home, but I had a very successful career in, believe it or not, the software industry. And my husband had been a graduate student at MIT and we made a really good life in Boston. And then we moved to Cambridge, England, where my life was much harder because I didn't know anybody there. I wasn't working. I was either at home being pregnant and then I had, was at home taking care of a baby. So things weren't really that great for me and I wasn't happy there. But I was, you know, I was basically fine. And until then, all my life, I sort of thought of myself as a, a strong, well-balanced person who could, you know, do whatever I needed to do and could handle anything that came my way. But toward the end of our stay, when my husband was looking for a job, he started talking about moving again somewhere new. And this would have been the third time to places where we knew no one and also that maybe didn't even seem like they were the right kind of community for me to live in. 
And, you know, he just said, well, you know, I should know where the best job for a professor is. And I was like, but I thought we were going back to California. And we reached an impasse over that. And I really felt, started to feel trapped in a way that I wouldn't if I hadn't had a child because I didn't want to break up our family. Whereas earlier I would have said, well, fine, I'll go to California. You do what you want. So I felt really stuck. And then certainly after that, my father had a stroke and you know, that permanently changed him. And my parents had to leave. They were also living in England, though, in London. And I just started developing these symptoms that were really terrible. I stopped being able to sleep night after night after night. I completely lost my appetite and started losing weight. And I was just at my wit's end. I didn't even really know what was going on with me, but it was just terrible. And when I finally went to my general practitioner there in England, he actually had a surprising reaction, which was, he was like, oh, well, you know, you're having a breakdown, like, duh, obviously you're living in a foreign country, you know, you're having marital stress. And this this happens all the time with the foreign wives of graduate students. I was like, I mean, postdocs though. So that was interesting. But, you know, even though I started to get better with his help, I was so shocked by the whole experience in a way because it changed my whole self-image. I had really thought of myself as being strong and competent and, you know, easy to, and it was easy for me to weather the ups and downs of life. And here I was completely defeated by my situation. And I was really actually ashamed of needing to take medication, something I've gotten over that shame. But at the time I was really ashamed about that. So I started to think of myself differently as really vulnerable and fragile maybe. And then also to start thinking about life more differently because it was like life was more difficult than I thought and maybe more frightening. And so I just had to reassess everything. And instead of just sort of, because it's what I'm like, People who know me or people who've read my reading will uh, read my writing will know that what I'm like is I always have to know why I always have to understand more. So in order, I couldn't just accept like oh medication and everything's better. I didn't like what why did this happen to me? What's going on here? Like and what can I do to prevent this from happening again? So that that was the beginning of my journey into learning more about psychology and a lot of other, you know, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, and so on. It happened that I had already been doing yoga. I wasn't doing it that regularly at the time because I had the baby, but it wasn't anything that I ever thought of that would be something that I could rely on to help me with these problems, interestingly. Well, I think most people just think of it as a physical practice. And at the time, I was basically thinking of it that way too, even though I love physical practice. So when I fast forward a number of years, it wasn't until several years later, by which time I already had another child, and I started studying yoga with Rodney Yi and writing with him, that I had a teacher, a yoga teacher who was, who understood how the yoga poses could affect you emotionally and energetically, as well as physically, like for strength or flexibility. And he didn't really know the science behind it, but he had a really good understanding. And he, I had, was very privileged to be his co-author 
because I also became his <laughs> private student as a result. So if I said something like, you know, I'm really tired, and he'd say, he'd tell me what I should do in my home practice. He'd say, oh, here, practice these poses, or, you know, I'm really hyper, whatever. And he knew how to address those things. So I began to see the power of yoga to affect you emotionally and mentally as well as physically. But Ronnie didn't have the background that in science or anything. So I began to wonder about that and I began to study with other people too. So during that time when I was still a student, I studied with Patricia Walden, who used to co-teach with Dr. Timothy McCall. And I studied with Roger Cole, who was a Iyengar yoga teacher, but also a sleep scientist. And from them, I learned a lot more information about what was going on and why different poses had different effects. And eventually, that was why I became a yoga teacher. I never dreamed of being a yoga teacher. I wanted to be a writer, which I still am. That's been the thing that I've been doing my whole life and wanting to do. But at a certain point, I began to realize that I had all this information about how yoga can help you with what I was calling emotional well-being at the time, and that I needed to share it because it could be so helpful to people. That's even a short version of the story, although that was quite long. Beautiful. And while the practices you share are thousands of years old, you really highlight how you and some of the other people you quote are using them to navigate contemporary events like COVID and climate crisis weather. Has the tumultuous nature of the past few years given this project impetus? You know, this may surprise you, but the timing was actually very fortuitous. I came up with this idea for this book in 2019, beginning of 2019. My editor asked me if I would write a book by myself, which was an offer I felt like I couldn't refuse. And at first I said I didn't really have an idea, but then I sort of came up with this way of framing so many of the things that I talked about in in that long story to you, which was like how to deal with changes in your life when they become too much. So I actually outlined the book at that time, wrote a sample chapter, did the whole book proposal and handed it in. And at that time, it was primarily focused on what I call the, the rocky road of life, which is like the bumps that we all personally encounter you know, just like marriage, divorce, you know, moving to a new country, having children, having someone you care for die and so on. But it took the publishers actually quite a long time for my editor saying she loved the book proposal to actually making me the offer. And by the time the actual offer came through, the pandemic had already started. And so I began writing the book at the very beginning of the pandemic when things were very locked down. And obviously that was a huge change for everyone worldwide. And so it fed into my writing and I realized it expanded it out a bit. So even though I ended up following the same outline that I had before, I started to realize, well, you know, we don't just have personal lives. We're all connected to the world in general and things that happen in the world and in our locally and globally have profound effects on us, whether it's, you know, the pandemic or, you know, political turmoil, war, for example, global warming, all these issues. And 
there was a day that I write about in the book when our state was on fire. This is California. And we woke up in the morning and the whole sky was dark orange because there was a high layer of smoke. And below the smoke, the marine fog had come in because I live in the Bay Area and it was blocking a lot of the sun sun from coming in. And the only part that through were the orange parts. So it was just terrifying. And, you know, the whole world was, was different for us. And, you know, we were just kind of gobsmacked by that. So all that fed into my understanding of change as being not just the Rocky Road ice cream of life, but, you know, that plus the big things that we all have to deal with and face as as a culture, as a world, as a local community and so on. And actually that aspect of the book, like that really personal sharing from your own life and also some of the other people who you hear you share from in the, the book as well, kind of sharing aspects like losing someone that you love, which have always been part of the human experience. It really brings these practices home, kind of sharing these very touching and vulnerable stories, as well as the educational aspect and some of the science behind these postures. Is that naturally the way that you write or did you kind of shape the book around the experiences and then draw from the research to support it? I think that examples are really important to illustrate concepts that you're writing about. I've, I've been thinking that for a really long time, even starting as a technical writer. So a lot of people will write about abstract concepts, whether, you know, they're talking about yoga philosophy or, you know, how to write a computer program or something like that. And they'll just say a bunch of words. But if they don't have an example, it's hard to kind of digest what what they're saying and apply it to yourself. And having a personal story for yoga really helps the concepts come alive, give somebody something to relate to and helps them understand how the concepts played out in a given incident, in a given situation. So actually I did write the book first and the sections first and then seek out people I knew who had good stories. And I'm actually, it's one of my superpowers. I'm pretty good at drawing people out and getting them to tell their stories by asking them the right kinds of questions. And so that's what I did with a number of people. So an example I just used was Bonnie made a very painful story about the murder of her youngest child. And so I did call her while I was writing this book and ask her if she would help me because I knew that she knew a lot about yoga for grief because she teaches it and she'd been a hospice nurse. And I knew she had some personal stories that she could tell too. She's also very good about being very honest about things. So I contacted her and, you know, fortunately for me, she agreed to share all that. And then, you know, all the other stories too. I was uh, pestering people I knew who had good stories to tell me. And obviously, you're really good at helping people feel safe with you and safe trusting you with their very personal stories. And actually, I felt like your whole writing style felt very trauma-informed. Like there was lots of places where you gave people instructions to seek medical help in specific circumstances and even how you 
lay out the format of each section so that people know what to expect. There were lots of outs in the practices when people are practicing at home and just acknowledging that different things work for different people and also including an evidence base for the practices. Was this a conscious choice or is this just a natural continuation of the way that you teach and you write? Oh, it was definitely a a conscious choice. I didn't really think of it as being trauma-informed per se, but I do understand that everyone is different and has different needs and preferences. It's something I observed over the years. I mean, I could start by saying, you know, I just don't like restorative yoga. That's the truth. It doesn't work for me for a number of reasons. And yet there's people I know who just love it. So, you know, I learned that 20 years ago. So there was that. And then also later on, when I, after I studied with Rodney, I started to study with a teacher who had been the biggest influence on my life. It doesn't get talked about very much. His name was Donald Moyer. I was a student for 14 years and he had the most lovely way of teaching where he would say things like, try it and see how it feels. Or if it doesn't work for you, try the exact opposite. (laughs) So I was very inspired by that and the way he supported people in the class and let them explore and find their own way through yoga. And this was kind of before the whole trend now with these things. So I've always had that approach, but on the other hand, it was also very conscious that I, I put it in. Part of it is because I don't like prescriptive yoga. You know, when people will say like, oh, here's one sequence for anxiety, like that's going to work for everyone. (laughs) I just don't believe in it. And then also another thing is I'm not a yoga therapist. So I wanted to be really careful how I said things. So I even consciously stopped using the word recommend and I said suggest. I had suggestions. So I was very careful with my language in that way because I I wanted to offer possibilities for people, not prescribe anything, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And it really works for the format of a book that's going to guide a personal practice to give people all of these options and all of these pathways and to put the emphasis back on them to choose what is going to be the most helpful for them individually. And I actually love how you share a variety of practices for each particular emotional issue. Like, for example, there's an active anger practice and then a calming anger practice and an active practice for fear and anxiety and a calming practice. Would you like to share about your thought process in actually putting together these sequences within that non-prescriptive framework that you've described? Well, I was trying to give people options. And I gave them short things so they could customize it, add to it, skip over things. And I was also trying to use a very simple vocabulary of poses to make it as accessible as possible. You know, I didn't want to, oh, like, for example, I talked to Jarvis Chen, who's a senior yoga teacher I know who works with Patricia Walden about anger and because he and Patricia teach yoga for anger. And he said, oh, you know, handstand, (laughs) do handstand because it's a full body pose. And I was like, well, you know, not everyone can do handstand. (laughs) So, you know, I have that awareness because 
I have some limitations of my own these days, but also I worked with Jivana Heyman a lot and I took the accessible yoga training. So I do also have a awareness of, you know, the huge variety of people's abilities. And so, you know, in the Yangar world, they tend to like suggest all these very challenging poses, you know, because of who their specific student population is. So that, you know, that was all, those were all the things that I kept in in mind. Is that what you mean? Or? Yeah, I was just really interested in how you worked the sequences out and just cycling back to the Iyengar thing and accessibility. One thing that I really loved in your book is you didn't just share accessible variations of the postures, but you also... I think, thought about what kind of props people would actually have in their homes. So there weren't sequences that involve like a yoga chair with no back and four bolsters. It was really <laughs> simple stuff like pressing against a wall or a regular chair or pillows. So I loved that accessibility aspect as well. Like it seems like you really thought about what would be useful and accessible for people. Yeah, I did. I've been practicing yoga at home regularly for I think I've lost track, maybe 25 years or something. So, and, you know, I've done it while I've traveled and so on. So, you know, even though I, I'd have more props than people normally do, I do understand what it's like to be a real person in the real world and want to try to do things and both in terms of challenge level and props that you need. And yeah, definitely tried to keep it really, really simple. Hello, Ran here. I just wanted to pop in and let you know what's going on at our studio, Garden of Yoga. Just like many teachers out there, we have moved a lot of our teaching online and we launched a member section on our website a while back. And now we have over 200 classes available at the moment and we're adding a couple of new ones every week. There are a couple of free samples available, but for the full experience, you can sign up for just $40 a month. And this also gives you unlimited access to our live streaming classes on Zoom. For more details, go to gardenofyoga.com.au slash videos and I will leave a link in our show notes. Let's get back to our conversation with Nina. Something else that occurred to me as I was reading between like the calming sequence and the active sequence, if it's not immediately obvious, like say if someone's feeling both tired and wired, how do you suggest people work out which practice would be the most helpful for them? I really think addressing the wired part first is important because when you're really wired but exhausted, it's actually hard to rest. You can lie down, but your mind is still racing and you feel really unsettled and it'd be hard for the relaxation response to kick in. So if you can do a more active practice first, that kind of makes you a little more tired, releases some of your physical energy, and also just the stretching and moving and all that releases physical tension from your body, it's then easier to rest. Now, that being said, sometimes you're so tired, you really can't do anything. And there's actually nothing wrong with resting first, then becoming more active and then resting again which is something you don't see very often. It actually, it actually reminds me of an experience I had with Rani because I was having what I was calling fatigue attacks while I went through menopause. So he was, you know, writing a sequence for me and he had me doing some active stuff. And I said, but I'm so tired. 
And he said, oh, well, just start with legs up the wall first and then gradually do these other things. And, you know, classes are never like that, right? But there's no reason why you can't do that, why you can't, you know, do a restful thing. And then I think there's a sequence like that in the book, I believe, where you start resting and then become a little more active and then more active and more active. It's a fatigue practice and then and standing up. There's no reason why you can't reverse that, right? It's just not the way classes are traditionally done these days. So that's what I would say. Right. And the baroreceptor system is an aspect of our physiology that we're able to work with through yoga. Would you like to describe it and how you can affect it through yoga and particularly inversion, speaking of legs up the wall? Do you want me to describe the whole anatomical situation? If that's okay, I think that would actually be super helpful because it's something I discovered after my yoga teacher training. And I feel like it's an aspect of our physiology that is within our scope to affect, which can have such a powerful whole body and mind response. Oh, I heartily agree with that. It's really huge. And actually understanding these things helps you, helps you practice them and teach them more effectively. So Basically, it has to do with how your blood pressure is regulated. When you're standing up and your blood rushes down towards your feet, your blood pressure sensors, which are called baroreceptors, there's one in your aortic arch above your heart, and there's some in your carotid arteries, which are in your neck. So they're just in two places, and that's important to understand. So when you're standing up, your blood flows down from towards gravity, right? And it's moving away from your heart and air in your neck. So your body's like, oh, whoa, blood pressure is going down. Better stimulate my blood pressure a little bit. And, you know, that actually happens when you get out of bed in the morning, like because you've been lying down and then you stand up. So that's important in our daily lives and not just yoga. But the reverse happens when you are in an invert inverted pose because you're upside down or partly upside down, which means that your heart is above your head. Your blood is actually flowing towards your heart and your baroreceptor sense that your blood pressure is therefore going up. And so it's like, oh no, blood pressure is going up, better lower it. So it sends a message to your brain to lower your blood pressure and reduce your stress hormones and all that good stuff. So that's how the physiology of the pose is triggering the relaxation response. And the added thing is the neck position because your neck is often flexed in certain partial inversions like bridge pose or shoulder stand. Point Your chin is pointing towards your chest. It's putting pressure on your carotid arteries. So that also has an effect too because that is temporarily raising your blood pressure because it's compressing them and then your nervous system will respond by by lowering it and reducing your stress hormones. So that's why Jalandhar Banda is calming and seated. So both things play in to you getting this really strong physiological reaction of relaxation, lowered stress and so on from the both the head position and your body's position with your heart above your head. So those are things that we're taking advantage of in these yoga poses. And 
It does take a while to take effect. So it doesn't take effect immediately when you get in. And that's one reason either to hold the pose. I've, I can feel after all these years, I can feel it taking effect. Have you, either of you ever felt that feeling? Yeah, I actually teach aerial yoga. And so there are a lot of supported inversions in that and poses where you hang the aerial hammock quite low to the ground. So there's a lot of scope to set up that kind of extended chest, flexed neck, elevated heart shape, and then really settle in for a long time. So I've absolutely experienced those benefits myself. And I love that I get to share it with people as well. Like you can feel the shift in the room when people really start to like, I don't like to say let go or settle in, but you can just feel everyone getting calmer. And because the hammock is quite supportive, I think it's it helps you feel supported as well in those shapes. Yeah, I've I've witnessed that when teaching those supported inversions. I call it the look that people get on their <laughs> face, where you know it's been working. That they they just look quieter. They've had a quieting experience. So yeah, it's a beautiful thing to facilitate. Definitely. And I guess the flip side of that is, which I think is something you really explore very well in your book, is how something that for one person is so calming, like a restorative posture or a meditation or a relaxation, can actually have the opposite effect sometimes. Like you talk about postures that cause brooding or ruminating and how if someone is kind of on a bit of a dark mental spiral, that quiet time to look inwards can actually have a really detrimental effect. Would you like to kind of talk about cautions in that area? Sure. First of all, everyone should generally just trust their own experience. Sometimes people think something is wrong with them because they don't feel what they've been told they should feel. Like pranayama is relaxing. Well, maybe some people, and I didn't, you know, some people are anxious when they focus on their breath. So no, pranayama is going to be relaxing to them, right? So that's important for people to trust their own experience and observe all that. I collected these ideas uh, partly from Patricia Walden because I took her Yoga for Depression workshop three times, I think. And she talks about, you know, how the forward bending poses can cause brooding. Closing your eyes is sometimes difficult for people with depression or anxiety and so on. I don't really have the whole list in one place of all the things. I do have that section in my book called When Relaxing Isn't Relaxing, where I have alternatives for things that if there's something isn't working for you, I give you alternatives. But something I also learned from practicing yoga regularly with someone, a yoga teacher who had a lot of anxiety. And he told me that just lying on his back for Shavasana when he was anxious made him more anxious. He felt so vulnerable and so on. So he would do crocodile pose, prone Shavasana instead, because lying on his belly felt better. So I just hearing different things from different people over the years and collecting them. And then at some point, also, I heard from Dr. Lynn Summerstein, how I became friendly with her. She wrote to me based on something I'd written on my blog to caution me. She's a a psychoanalyst and a yoga teacher, (laughs) which is an interesting combination. So she said, you know, that 
everyone thinks meditation is so good for everyone, but that actually for some people, especially people with depression or anxiety, it can send them into a downward spiral because being alone with their thoughts just takes them down and down and down. So, and that that's actually dangerous. So I just, uh, over the years have been collecting those ideas, which is just more evidence, I guess, that everything doesn't work for everybody. You have to trust your own judgment about what you're feeling and what you're not feeling. And just because a teacher or somebody says, this is relaxing or this is good for you, doesn't really mean it is. And I think even just naming those possibilities is really powerful because you don't always hear that in class. (laughs) Oh, that's definitely true. And I can't tell you how many people have told me they heard all pranayama was relaxing and it stresses them out and they think there's something wrong with them as a result. And often that's because, you know, all pranayama actually, some pranayama actually is stimulating, can make you feel really bad if you have a certain kind of nervous system. Some people can just do all the practices and they're all fine. But so, yeah, and that doesn't get talked about very much either. Mm -hmm. Another topic you cover is managing insomnia. Our sleep is something that can be really affected by our emotional state and can then make our daytime life a bit harder. I think I know all about this. Uh, which a lot practice- harder. <laughs> <laughs> so which, which practices do you think are the most helpful for sleep? Well, I'm going to take a minute because I, I knew you were going to ask this question. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I have notes because I can't remember everything in my book, believe it or not. It's a long book. <laughs> <laughs> I've been collecting all that information for years. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Again, you know, actually, I mean, I could go through the list of what I have. But again, it's going to differ from person to person, right? But I really think that the most important thing for insomnia to do is practice stress management. Because when you're chronically stressed, what's happening is your nervous system is what they call, and I just learned this word after I wrote my book, unfortunately, uh, hypervigilant. That's what they call it. You're hypervigilant. It means you're you're just looking around your environment for danger all the time. So, you you know, you can imagine if you were in a situation that really isn't safe, like let's say Ukraine, we don't have to go back to primitive times, but like you're in Ukraine, right? Right now, and there's bombing and, you know, or possible invasion going on. So, you know, you're not going to be sleeping soundly because it's actually a healthy reaction to, you know, be on the alert and like listen for warnings and, you know, protect your family and so on. So there's a function to that. But the problem is if maybe you're stressed out about work stuff and there's really nothing life-threatening going on (laughs) or your taxes are due or something, (laughs) you know, you're losing sleep doesn't really have, have a good function, but your nervous system doesn't know the difference between sort of like actual physical danger and danger from, you know, things that you're that aren't really life-threatening so if you practice stress management what happens is it lowers your stress hormones it lowers your you know regularly it lowers your baseline stress levels so when you go to bed you have a much better chance of falling asleep than if you're just chronically stressed and running around feeling really agitated so that's what i would say is the number one thing 
I also think it's really important to prioritize your sleep because like I said, it makes a huge difference in your daily life, really not just a little difference like sleeping badly as, and I explained that I had really terrible insomnia. So I know about it is to plan your whole day around getting better sleep. And by that, I mean, you know, a new thing, a new metaphor for that, that I didn't have in my book that I've been thinking of lately for this is to think of yourself as taking care of a child, you know, children need some help going to sleep and you can't like take a child and like my husband used to do sometimes before bedtime, run, run around playing hide and seek with the kids and throwing them around and then just throw them around and expect them to go to sleep, right? They're like hyper and they're not ready for bed anymore. So, you know, thinking about your whole day, so like doing more active stimulating activities during the day and then in the evening starting to wind down and, you know, do more relaxing things and then even... Now I'm suggesting before you go to bed, like how you read to your kids, you know, a bedtime story and help them brush their teeth or whatever, have some kind of nighttime rituals to kind of calm yourself down and let your body know it's time for sleep can be helpful instead of, you know, just watching some scary thing on Netflix and expecting to go to sleep. Or watching the news. (laughs) Or watching, no, really, yeah, watching the news, definitely. So yeah, that, you know, for some people that's fine, but if it doesn't, if you have insomnia, it doesn't work for you. So like taking some quiet time before you go to sleep. And then again, if sometimes when you just get in bed, your your insomnia fears get fired up, you know, because you're like, oh no, I'm in bed. What if I get, what if I get sleep tonight? So at that time, you know, I have suggestions for things to do like, you know, practicing breath awareness or even meditating in bed to quiet your mind, doing some poses that you can do like a supported bridge pose with pillows, which is, you know, one of our calming supported inversions. There's different things that will work for different people depending on themselves and also if there's someone else in the bed with you and so on. So keeping the lights off and so on. So things to do when you're falling asleep and also when you wake up in the middle of the night. And another interest, like, thank you for sharing that. Another interesting thing that I read in that chapter about sleep was how sometimes doing a guided relaxation in the afternoon or whenever you feel like you need that extra rest is more helpful than taking a nap. Would you like to share a bit about that? Yes. Um, There's a big difference between sleep and what is called conscious relaxation. So I learned, to, the author of this book just died recently. It had such a huge effect on me. It was a book written in the 70s, actually called The Relaxation Response. And he talks about the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the side of your system that's responsible for relaxation or what they call the rest and digest response that brings your body into the state of relaxation, which is what helps you sleep. So there's a big difference between sleep in that book, and he compares them, and relaxation, conscious relaxation. And in conscious relaxation, one of the things that happens that's so powerful is it gradually reduces your stress hormone levels, including the ones that affect insomnia. So practicing that when you're awake is going to reduce your stress levels and reduce your stress hormones. Sleep doesn't do that. As we all know, 
you have nightmares and you wake up with your heart pounding. So you can actually have experienced stress during your sleep. Sleep is really important and we need it. And it does things like they think clean, clean our brains and do really important things for us. But it doesn't reduce stress levels. That's something that needs to be done with the rest and digest response. So practicing any form of conscious relaxation, it doesn't have to be a guided relaxation, but that's just a comparison. So I don't actually practice guided relaxations very often. Some people love them. I'd be more likely to do again, like self-help well pose, which is my go-to, which has the same effect of reducing the stress hormones. A guided relaxation is doing it because it's having you concentrate on neutral thoughts instead of anxious thoughts or angry thoughts or depressed thoughts. So you're concentrating on what the voice is telling you. And that tells your body you're in safe circumstances. You're safe now. You're just thinking about, you know, hot or cold. I don't remember all the things you <laughs> guided relaxation, but you see what I mean. You're not thinking about your problems. And so enough time spent doing that and your body starts to relax more and more. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think something else that can be helpful with a pre-recorded guided relaxation is the time frame is built into it. So it's like you kind of set yourself like 20 minutes or 35 minutes to take time to relax. And for me, that can sometimes be helpful. And I think if you are someone who has a lot of thoughts going on and a tendency to jump from one thing to another, that gentle discipline of giving these feelings this time can also be like an intention setting practice. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, it, it I was using the metaphor in my recent post about sleep that I did, because I've been thinking more about yoga for better sleep, because I'm going to teach it at some point, is that it's like, yeah, it sounds like it's like reading Goodnight Moon or something, you know, <laughs> to the child. It engages their minds in pleasurable thoughts. And it's, you know, a set length and a ritualistic thing that you do. And so maybe the guided relaxation can be like that. And flowing on from there, one of the things that I love about your writing and your book especially is how much of an evidence base you include with these practices, which is also a physiological explanation of how they work in your body. And I see that on your blog writing team, like you have Brad Gibson, who is a PhD scientific consultant, and forgive me if I get the name wrong, please correct me, Ramohan Rao, a neuroscientist and Ayurvedic doctor. And that's awesome because we get to experience the kind of historical benefits of these wisdom traditions with someone from an Ayurvedic background, but also the ability to use science to find out more about how these practices are working in our bodies. Would you like to speak a bit about that approach? Yes. Well, I, you know, actually Brad Gibson is my husband. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually important because it means that I've been living with a scientist all these years. So I I do have a, get some scientific information from him. Um, he used to work at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging, which is also where how I met Ram because Ram was working there as well. So I had all this information, scientific information about aging, but also I'm just used to 
you know, talking to scientists and talking about scientific things. So that, so that's a part of it. But also there's just that part of me that always wants to know why, why, how, how does this work? Why? The teacher can tell me this is calming or this is uplifting or this is anything, you know, and I, I don't want to know, like, really? Like, why? How? So I have that bent myself. And I think it, I think understanding why gives you a deeper understanding of how to use it. And, you know, pranayama is a good example of that. So when you understand how pranayama works by the inhalation, stimulating your heart rate to increase just go faster and your exhalation, stimulating your heartbeat to slow down, you start to realize, oh, that's why this practice has that effect and this practice has that effect. And, you know, you can really use those tools properly. Whereas people who don't understand might think all practices are calming or they might be doing a practice expecting a certain result and not getting it and thinking there's something wrong with them. So... I think it's really important to understand the science if you if you you can. But of course there isn't science for everything. So there's some things I do have to accept on yoga tradition or just can't remember what the term is, personal experience. There's some kind of official term for that. Brad calls that calls that the end of one, meaning, uh-huh. you know my own experience. So, you know, backbends is a good case for that. They're uplifting, they're energizing. I haven't gotten a good explanation for that, <laughs> but I've been in a room full of people who did a bunch of backbends and they're all like chattering away. And then when they're doing forward bends, they're all like, Quiet. you know, and then I know how I feel in my own body about it. So for those things, when I can't get a scientific explanation, I'll just say, you know, that, yoga tradition tells us this or our own experience tells us that tells us this because you know there isn't right now and maybe never will be a scientific explanation for everything so it's a balance both my parents are scientists so maybe that's why i identify so much with this style of writing as well and it's interesting how imaging technology is sometimes catching up to traditional wisdom. I remember a while ago, there was all this news about a new organ that was discovered in the system. And it was something that Chinese medicine had mapped and kind of known about through that whole tradition. Flowing on from there, though, I think there's a really nice interplay within your book between using yoga as a practice to help us fully experience our lives, but also as a respite when like the pain of certain times just feels overwhelming or you're exhausted in like a time of grief or crisis. And even though these ideas could be seen as contradictory, it feels like it's two sides of the same coin in your writing. Would you like to share a bit about this? Sure. Well, for a long time, I just knew that going to yoga class or practicing yoga at home made me feel better. And I didn't really know why. (laughs) Eventually, I figured out that it was really the, and this is what we're going to call the distraction of it in a way, like you would go in there and instead of thinking about whatever issues were weighing on you or, uh, you know, engaging you in your everyday life, you were just thinking about getting your body in various positions, breathing, you know, moving, feeling different physical sensations in your body. So it was 
like a little vacation. And I actually think that's really helpful for people. You would feel good afterwards. And I think that's the reason why people love going to yoga classes. So that's actually a great benefit because life can be difficult sometimes and getting a break, especially if it's a break you can give yourself in your own house. You don't have to like fly to Hawaii. <laughs> I, I actually wrote a post once, this just reminded me of called how to have a yoga staycation <laughs> because, you know, yeah, we can't, it's nice to have a vacation or, you know, go lie on a beach somewhere, which does have similar effects, but sometimes, you know, you just need to do it for yourself. And this is a really great way to do it. So I don't know how that relates to your other side of, fully experiencing our lives. But on the other hand, sometimes we do want to fully experience our lives. But a good example of that is grief. Grief is a difficult emotion to experience. And yet everyone says that we need to experience it fully. We can't just stuff it down and not feel it. We have to go through it. We have to move through it. And, but Yes, but sometimes if it's too much, you might need a break. I think, you know, life is like that too. We need to experience it fully, but we can also use a break sometimes while we're awake and not just when we're sleeping. Beautiful. Well, I guess we've got one more question. You might have already touched on this, but I guess if you could distill everything that you've learned and everything that you teach down to one core essence, what do you think that one thing would be? You didn't put that question in my list. (laughs) (laughs) Special surprise ground finale question. (laughs) I didn't have time to think about it. I would say that yoga has a lot to offer you both for helping you get through difficult times and helping you develop equanimity to be a calmer and happier person in your life. But you need to go into it with an attitude of exploration and learning about what works for you and what doesn't work for you and customize your own practice to suit who you are. Beautiful. Thank you for your wisdom here and thank you for everything that you've, you've shared in, in the past and your latest book. So, yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you and get to talk about some of my favorite things. I never thought I would be a person who wrote about yoga or taught yoga, but, but I'm still fascinated by the whole thing. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Nina. As I've mentioned already, she is a huge influence on how I think of yoga. So please do buy her book, Yoga for Times of Change. We'll include a link in our show notes to everything we've spoken about on our website, podcast.flowartist.com. You can also leave a comment there if you like. We'd love to hear from you. You can also find me on Instagram. It's Ran Loves Yoga. And Joe is there as Garden of Yoga. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Check out gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. He aroha nui, maua kia koutou katoa. Big, big love. <laughs>